Good morning, beloved. Good to see you. I want to welcome those online. Say hi to my mom in Florida. Hi, mom. And uh, today we're in a series called The Story, and we've been in it a few weeks. We learned about creation, Adam and Eve, and the fall. We began to see God restoring the world. We saw that through the flood, and he saved Moses, or Noah and his family. And then a new nation was born out of Abraham and Sarah, and they had some descendants. And he said to him, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars. And so that promise becomes true through his son named Isaac. Isaac had twins, Jacob and Esau, and the 12 tribes were born. And then Joseph came into the scene there, and God uses difficult circumstances in order for him to become the right-hand man of Pharaoh. And then we saw the miraculous happen as he saved them from famine and the rest of the world, too, in that area. And so last week, we looked at Moses and how God utilized Moses to let his people go because Pharaoh, a new Pharaoh came and put them in bondage. And so we saw that through the parting of the Red Sea, they were freed and delivered in order to worship Almighty God. And we saw that the, indeed freedom does lead to incredible worship. So the story picks up today, three months later, when they're encamped at the mountain of Mount Sinai. And I'm reading from Exodus chapter 19, verses 3 through 6. So Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourself have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And now if you obey me, fully keep my covenant, then out of you nations will come. You'll be my treasured possession. And though the whole earth is mine, you, for me, will be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And so... God's vision for Israel was to be holy as God is holy. And the word holy means to be set apart for a special purpose, to be different, to be countercultural. And God wants to use this nation to bring humankind back into a relationship with himself. And so Moses goes back down the mountain and he shares with his people and he says, we, they say, we will do everything the Lord has said. And so Moses goes back up, and for 40 days, God begins to outline what this relationship will look like. And then comes the Ten Commandments. And we find him in chapter 20 of Exodus. And so the first four deal with their relationship and our relationship with God. They guide that they're pretty clear. They're pretty simple. We are not to have no other gods before him. God first. They were not to make any graven image or idol and fall down and worship that image. Never misuse his name in vain. And we got into that when we discovered what Yahweh means. And they would honor and worship God by keeping the Sabbath holy. And just as God rested, they are supposed to rest every seventh day. Now, commandments 5 uh, through 10 guide how they would treat each other. Honor your parents. Don't murder. 
don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, and don't lust or covet your neighbor's stuff. They're simple, they're to the point, and they're absolutely necessary when we think about it, how to guide a society in order for that society to be good. However, keeping them for the people was very difficult. And while Moses was getting away, going away, getting instructions from God, things get unsettled with his people down below. They begin to grow impatient. And you know, impatience usually leads to sin, I think. It seems they've gone, grown tired of waiting for their leader to return. And they're probably looking up and asking, where did that guy go? Is he going to come back? And so Exodus 32 says this. Come, let us make gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. So these people who are called to be holy, they go to Aaron, who is the high priest, Moses' brother, and they ask him for an idol. And Aaron says, okay, bring me all your gold jewelry and we'll fashion it for an idol. And here they they start worshiping it, and they, they break commandment one and two immediately. <laughs> and chaos ensues, and God, God knows it. And he sends Moses down to clean things up. He says, go down, Moses, right now. And so Joshua was with him, and they descend that mountain, and they hear the yelling and screaming. And Joshua thinks there's a battle that's broken out against the people, but Moses knows better. When he arrives at that camp, he sees this golden calf. Can you imagine that? He explodes with anger. He destroys that idol. And then he goes looking for Aaron. <laughs> Aaron, what, what happened here, man? <laughs> Can you imagine that conversation? And here's Aaron's explanation. Don't be angry, Lord. You know how prone these people are to evil? They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. For this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. So I told them. Whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. And they gave me gold, and I threw it in the fire, and out comes this calf. You know? You think about those excuses. You know, we didn't know you were coming back. And they made me do it. Moses, the pressure was too great. It's like an ABC after-school special, Moses. I had to do it. You see the pressure that they posed upon their leadership. You know, I've done the same thing caved in to pressure, you know. I've shifted blame to others, you know, blame about maybe my sin, and it's an easy route. It's the road frequently traveled. It's what also our culture does, and we forget that when we don't immerse ourselves into the Holy One, the Yahweh. And so in Exodus 32, we see the consequences, and they're pretty horrific, man. 3,000 people die. Moses, God's, God wants to take him out. Moses, he drops to his knees and he, he like grabs, as if he grabs God's hand in the hand of these people and he's just intercessory prayer for them. And he prays that God will forgive them. And he offers, uh, he said, I'll, I'll be offered as an atonement for their sin, God. I'll, I'll be sacrificed if you just take this sin away of what my people do or have done. He says, blot me out of your book you have written. And it says that in 3232, and I'll offer my life if you'll just forgive them. Okay, so they make a promise of obedience 
We'll do whatever the Lord says, and then a few days later, they're breaking that commandment that he gave them to follow. And so Aaron's uh, diagnosis to the problem, or he diagnosed the problem correctly. He said, these people, they are prone to evil. And how can they ever become a kingdom of priests and holy? And God wants them to be that way. You know, and you're thinking as you read this, and I dug into that, that scripture, it's like, is there any hope for these people? You know, I'm thinking, well, is there hope for me? You know, they are, and we see it. I remember hearing that we're like a car, you know, that's out of alignment. You ever driven a car that's out of alignment, and you let go of the wheel, and it just starts going like this? And I think that's why we have that song, Jesus, take the wheel, you know? Because um, sometimes in life, we're just, we just feel that way. And so here, here's what God does. And he forms this tabernacle instruction. So not only did he give the Ten Commandments while Moses was on the mountain for 40 days, he also gave them very detailed instructions of what this place of worship and sacrifice and what they're to do. And it's in Exodus 24. And the tabernacle is going to be that center of this place, this worship life and community. And this tabernacle would remind them of two things. That the presence of God is there. And they won't forget that. And then how their worship was to be conducted and the sacrifices made. And I love how, I always look at Pastor Mark's sermon. I love how he describes this. And I, I think if, if you could, I mean, if you want to, you can close your eyes. I want to put you in, in the high priest's uh, body, you know, like seeing through their eyes and their brain, you know. So you're in this movable tent. You enter this gate. You're led to this courtyard. The first thing you would see is an altar. It was made of wood and covered with bronze. It was square-shaped, five, six feet tall with the same width, and there was a horn at each corner, and there were these animals that would be sacrificed. They would be tied there. And the worshiper would bring their sacrifice to that tabernacle to be killed. And you would see blood that would be poured out at the foot of that altar, and you can imagine what that would be like. It, it didn't look like our worship. You know, you can open up your eyes and look around. You don't walk in, you know, you don't see a place like that here. You come in to get your coffee, man, the best coffee ever in Cincinnati. And you get a warm handshake from the greeter. Thank you, greeters and ushers. And you get that weekly program, and you sit, sit down in a nicely padded chair, and you come and listen to this powerful music where you just give it up, and you're free to worship. But this is different. So you go back in the mind's eye of the priest, there would be bleeding of animals, you know, and all sorts of smells and blood, lots of blood. And then you said this priest would see this basin, and it would be located in the outer court between the altar and entrance to the holy place. And it was made with brilliantly polished bronze and held water. And it was used by Aaron and his son to wash their hands and feet before they went into the tent. In Exodus 30, you know the consequences of not washing first. It was death. That's how serious this stuff was. On, was. And past the basin was another tent called the holy place. And there was a table or a bread offering, candlestick, and only the priests were allowed in this room. Separating this room was a thick veil. It went into the holies of holies, and there was the ark of the covenant. 
I don't know if it looks like that in Indiana Jones, but it's the Ark of the Covenant. And it symbolized for the Jewish people the presence and holiness of God. And it represented the true throne of God, which was heaven, and the Ten Commandments were in that. And then there was this shedding of blood that was done one day a year. And that's when the Ark was seen by the high priest. It was the Day of Atonement, the tenth day of the month, of the seventh month. And it would be October 8th coming up here if we watch that calendar, Yom Kippur. And we know that was the day of atonement forgiveness. And we would make sure we would go to others and seek that forgiveness as well. And so on this day, and you can enter in as the high priest, you would spend your day fasting. You would basically get naked and sterilize yourself. You would take the best bath you could ever take in this basin. You would put a brilliant white linen robe on you would lead a young bull and ram into the outer court where and then confess your sins you would lay hands on the bull slaughter it on the altar and this was just for your personal sins as a high priest and then you would put that blood in a bowl burn part of the bull on a bronze altar take some of the hot coals from the altar and then you would move to the bronze basement basin where you would wash your hands and feet and enter the Holy of Holies. Next, you would take incense from the altar and put it in a censure where the hot coals were and the smoke would rise. And facing the veil, you would walk in. A rope would be tied to your ankle just in case you fell dead from being in the presence of God so that you could be pulled out by the other priests. Bells were sewn on the bottom of your pants your robe, just to make sure that the priest knew you could, you're still moving around. Because if it went silent, they'd pull you out because you're dead, man. And the high priest, you would then dip your finger into the bowl of blood and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And then seven times on the floor in front of the ark. And then you'd leave the holy of holies. You'd go back to the outer court where you took two goats. You'd throw lots to see which ghost was sacrificed. And then you went back into the holy of holies. You'd sprinkle the blood. The other goat was called the scapegoat. And the high priest would confess the sins of the nation over the scapegoat. And then the goat was led out of the temple and sent into the wilderness and released and the sins of that nation were atoned for through those actions forgiven for another year and they're a holy nation again and why was all this blood necessary it was to remind them that their sin had to be atoned for by the shedding of blood sin has to be dealt with and God required that at that time and the nation was relieved can you imagine that all right, wow, clean slate, start it up again, wow, man, this ritual paid the price for my sin, and the trouble was, it was temporary, it was temporary, it didn't last, couldn't keep all 600 plus rules and regulations, and as, as they try as they might as a holy nation, the kingdom of priests, they would, kingdom of priests called to be holy, they would fail over and over, it was basically a performance trap. And as hard as they tried to be a blessing, holy nation, counterculture, to be a different kind of community, community from other nations, they just can't, couldn't, couldn't help but becoming like everyone else. So fast forward 2,000 years. The New Testament writers, especially the Apostle Paul, who was his Pharisee, would look at what Jesus had done on the cross and where he would be the sacrifice once 
and for all, and see the connection between that day of atonement and the book of Exodus. And Paul says it in Romans 3.25. He said, God presented us Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Right there. And the Greek word for sacrifice of atonement, when you look at the deeper realities, refers to the Ark of the Covenant. Think about that. Put that together. It's mind-blowing. It tells us what Paul had in mind on the Day of Atonement when the high priest would take some of the blood into the Holy of Holies in the temple and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And the writer of Hebrews writes this, and he looks back, and he, he knows it. Look at this powerful stuff in chapter 10. Day after day, the priest would stand and perform his religious duties again and again. He'd offer the same sacrifices, and you can read that, which can never take away sin. But the high priest, look at what a Hebrew writer is doing there. One time, one sacrifice. Sat down, right hand of God, completed you think about reading between the lines of that, what he has done, that we made perfect forever. And we are being made holy through the sacrifice. They looked down and saw Jesus as the fulfillment, his death on the cross. What he what has done, what the bull, blood of bulls and goats could never do. And through the sacrifice of God's only son, once and for all, God did it. His great love did it. And we have total access to the love. The curtain was torn. You remember that? From top to bottom, we have access into the Holy of Holies. You don't really need no rope on your ankle anymore, man. You're not going to be pulled out dead. Christ died so that we could have life. That's what keep us, keeps us aligned, man. It's the greatest tire discounter ever. You know, we're going to head to no ditch, but... But by, you ever heard it said, by the grace of God, there go I, though? You know, and so that's why we have to stay connected to God, and it's by God's grace that makes us holy. And so what is holiness? There's this word, Christian word, and I don't know if you're, if you're familiar with it, if you're new in your faith, but it's called sanctification. It's sanctify is to set aside, to make holy. And Asian, you know, is that action. That's a theological word. That's my breakdown there. Is to be set apart for a holy purpose. Just as God set Israel apart, God sets us apart as the church. And the process of becoming more and more like Jesus is that process of sanctification. It's a process of God working within you, forming you into the exact image of Christ who has sacrificial love. Excuse me. Sacrificial love. And we are too. That agape love that loves and doesn't expect anything in return. And we have that. When I was in fifth grade, my parents purchased this old shabby farmhouse on Holmes Hill Road in the Ridge out Rising Sun out in the country. We have we had several acres. I remember seeing it for the first time, and I said, man, this looks like a barn. There is no way we are living in that. Dad said, yes, we are, son. And we are poor, man. We are poor. And um, we, mom and dad, they had an antique shop, and they loved to restore things. And... They worked inside with some help. I was in fifth grade, and I tried to help. Don't ever give me a power tool. Um, but they started working on the inside. They put, I remember they put up barn siding in my room. They made it so cool, and they began to decorate inside. And I had a waterbed. I don't know if you guys ever had a waterbed. And that was cool. 
And um, they began to paint on the outside. And people who drove by knew that that was purchased. And they knew something was going on in that house. And they knew something was going to move, someone was going to move in. And somebody was going to dwell there. And it's the same with us. We were purchased by the price of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we are new creations in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, anyone who belongs to Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. And God's work helps us experience that fruit of the Spirit, that process. Galatians 5.22, Paul talks about this. It's evident. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And it's painful sometimes how we do fall short. And we continue to have that hope that he's going to perfect us in that love. And we believe that here. It's a part of our doctrine, man. It's something God does in, in, in us. And we have to stay attached and abide in Christ. We have to grow into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Well, last weekend, several men from Anderson Hills went on to walk to Emmaus. It's a 72-hour retreat, and people who attend a retreat are called pilgrims. And they don't have pilgrims' hats or anything like that. They're just pilgrims. They're on a journey. And there's lay talks and clergy talks and table discussions, special services, holy communion. And each person is just immersed in God's grace. And I've just gone through many, many of these as a spiritual director, and I just love it. It's a great instrument of teaching God's love and about sacrificial love, which is called agape love. And this one dude was talking to me, and he said, does this feeling ever leave you? I said, what do you mean, man? Just, I'm on this high. He gets, he's on fire for God, and he's smiling, and he's bold in his faith, and he has this joy and peace. And I told him, man, you got to keep fanning the flame. Flame, you gotta, we got to stay attached to the vine. Don't let the world steal it, I told him. Don't let the world do that. You know, we can't. Romans, and listen to this about, and remember all that sacrifice stuff? Paul says, you're a living sacrifice, not a dead sacrifice. You are a living sacrifice. So don't conform anymore to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And we, ha we have that happen through the ministries and means of grace in the church. We must hate what is evil and cling to what is good. We must abide in God. We must be fervent in prayer, study, and actions. And folks, it can happen. Trust me. Believe on that. It can. God wants to restore. God wants to work. And he does this with his love, his patience, his grace, and his son. A holy person is a loving person. A holy nation is a loving nation. A holy church that God's reviving is a loving church. And I love these videos, man. That's what it's all about. We are turned into action through our love. God made us for this kind of life. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And how does he do that? Does do, do that? He works in us through the ministry of his Holy Spirit. Jesus makes it clear in Matthew uh, chapter 22, the gospel there this Bible scholar asks him, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus says, love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is, 
Love your neighbor as you love yourself. All the law of the prophets hang on these two commandments. It's as if he summed up, summed up all 613 and said, if you do this, you're going to be a lover and holy. Love God. Love others. Think about all those laws specifically detailed, pages and pages and pages, and God made it simple through Jesus Christ. You see the teaching right here. Here's the takeaway. God didn't create the Ten Commandments and then create human beings to keep those laws. God created people and then created the Ten Commandments to guide us on how we love God and how we love others. And we sum them up in these words. When Jesus was his, with his disciples in the upper room eating the Passover meal, he says to them, the new commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. Greater has no one in this than they to lay down their life for a friend. So love one another and people will know that you are my followers, my disciples, if you love one another. How do people know we're a follower of Christ? How will they know God? Through our love. Don't withhold love. Sometimes we do. We think that. And we withhold love. Maybe from a friend or a coworker or our spouse. We, we tend to withhold love. Let your love show, flow, man. I don't know if you guys, you, you guys, the millennials probably don't know this song, the Bellamy Brothers. Just let your love flow like a mountain stream. Just let your love flow. That's a great song. I know it's kind of corny, but man, it's a great song. It, I love it, man. There's a feeling. You know, growing deep inside. Yeah. Google it. You millennials, Google it. It's a great song. It's corny. You're going to be like, oh, my gosh, Jonathan, I got that song in my head now. I can't get it out. You know, people like to try to isolate themselves, go, go far and away from, from people, maybe a monastery or a hermitage. And I, I go to those places to, to chill and to be God, uh, be with God. Not be God. Oh, no. Not so. <laughs> Spiritual maturity takes place as we learn how to love Jesus. And we can't do that without being in relationship with other people. God brings people into our lives to teach us how to love. And you have to be around people, irritating and oh, under-your-skin type of stuff. We, it helps us to grow in our love. Difficult people. Last night, I did a wedding down at the Renaissance Hotel. At the wedding reception, I wanted to avoid a person that was at a previous congregation. And I told Kim, I was like, let's just stay over here. And, and then I'm like, you know what? I, I know i got to preach this tomorrow. No, I really felt convicted. And I said, Kim, let's go over and talk to her and her husband. And you know what? It was cool. It, it was fine. We really discovered a lot about each other. And, and I just knew that I had to do that sacrificial love to her and to him. It's difficult. I did tap her on the back and say, okay, it's time to go. But think about that difficult person that God wants you to love. Think about maybe just taking a few steps over to your neighbor's house that maybe that neighbor has just been irritating. But you know what? You can show them the abundant life and great sacrifice, sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. So what, what do we need in order to love people? It's to know that we are loved by God. To be a holy people, we need to be secure in God's love for us. And maybe that's an area where you struggle. Maybe you, you want to be more loving. But when you really think about this, it can change you. 
And it can change the way you approach the world. And you have to let that love flow. Today, I want, I want you to know that you're loved by God in an immense way. I want you to receive that gift. You have to, because we have to be conduit. We're called to be lovers. I tell my congregation, when I was an Air Force chaplain, I'd tell airmen this. I said, you know what? I don't know what God's going to ask us when we finally meet God face to face, but I love this question. Is it, it's this. Did you understand, my child, how much I love you? Let's let that hang out there. And we think about the immensity just in this through his sacrificial love. The gift of God's love, when we try with all our might to understand and seek the creator of love, we will always grow in our capacity to love others. Why? Because we know how great our sin is. However, God showed us his great love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in that truth, we are freed for joyful obedience to love our neighbors. Pastor Jim Needham tells the story of being in a local uh, breakfast establishment, and he noticed a finely dressed man at an adjacent table with a very expensive suit and impeccable starch shirt and tie. His hair was in the right place, you know, his perfectly groomed mustache. And the man was seated, you know, seated alone. He's eating a bagel with cream cheese as if he was preparing for a meeting. He was looking at his notes. He glanced down at his Rolex. This is not a Rolex. And it was obvious that he had an important meeting ahead. And Jim said, I watched the man stand up, straighten his tie as he prepared to leave. And he noticed a blob of cream cheese on his mustache. He was about to go in the world dressed in the finest with this blob of cream cheese on his face. And I wondered if, if anyone would tell him. I wondered, he, Jim said, I wonder if I should warn him. But the man got up and left really fast. And he's like, man, hopefully someone warned him. You know, we can try to clean up on the outside, you know, but we know on the inside we are flawed. You don't have to be flawless to be holy. You don't have to be flawless to be used by God. God will use you with all your blemishes. Is there anything greater than the body of Christ loving on behalf of Christ? We have to love even when it's hard. And the world says, how can you love a person like that, man? We are to continually flabbergast the world by our radical love. We are. People will know Christians by what? Our gold cross and chain, our, our bumper sticker, our t-shirt. No, those are fine and dandy, but they will know that we are Christians by our sacrificial love. And when we are free to worship and we come here, it's like antiseptic for the week in order to continue to love. And when we love God in worship, that love pours out upon us and we're able to go out into the world and love. So we fill up you know, this is like marathon, man. <laughs> all right, man, I'm ready to love. Let's go for it. And we're going to rush out these doors, man, and go, all right, man, I'm going to love you. And that's what this is all about. That is what this is all about. And we see the great love and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So don't turn away from that love. I don't know if you've ever just said, God, I want to love you. I want to believe in you, Jesus, for what you've done for me. You know, come up. I'm the God that forgives you and loves you. Let's pray together. 
God, we give you thanks. We hear just this, these specifics of the atonement and the shedding of blood, and, and we see that and discover that, but there's more to the story, and we see what you have done for us in the sacrifice of your only son. And you call us to love you with everything, the fabric of our being, and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, for we find our identity in you. So God, may we just give it up and worship you and be filled with your love right now. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, all God's beloved children say, amen.